Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Slaughter Podcast will be discussing topics that some listeners may find disturbing. If you're still listening... Hi guys, and welcome to another episode of Slaughter. Glad to have you here. <laughs> We've already fucked it up. Right, let's keep going. Let's tunnel through. Um, so I'm doing quite a, I, I hope, anticipated one. I think we've had a few requests for this one over the over the last year or so. It's Ian Huntley and the Sower Murders. Yeah, why do you think people want to hear this story? Why do people want to hear about dead children? No, I, no it's just it is a known one, isn't it? I think it I was just so. massive in the press and people... I definitely remember it. It happened when I was... I th- feel like I was at primary school. We'll find out when the year co- in a minute. But it must have been a big deal then because yeah. I didn't pay attention to shit. I was way too busy, like, just scrolling in Carter 95. Endlessly. What's Carter 95? N Carter 95. It was, like, a software for an encyclopedia. <laughs> oh, yeah! <laughs> and I'd be, like, going all just search for musical instruments so you could hear what they sounded like. Yeah, yeah. There's also some really weird ones. I remember that. It was good. Yeah, that was when it was like fuck all on a computer, wasn't it? Yep. And we had um like music ninety four or some stupid thing that was like it was like that but music. So this was big. Yeah. Bigger than the small clip of I Have a Dream <laughs> that you could listen to on Encarta ninety five. <laughs> I used to rewatch that, um what's that what's that film where the bad guy gets in their nightmares? Nightmare on Elm Street. Oh, because that was like they had like three horror film clips on there. I used to rewatch that one over and over. That's ridiculous, isn't it? Like you are so starved of culture. <laughs> now I have the whole internet. Now I've got everything ever, <laughs> and I still keep going back to that clip. No, I don't. Um, so he was born in 1974. Was Ian Huntley? Um, six months after his parents were married. Oh God, I thought you can say six months after his parents, they were very young. <laughs> uh, but they were aged 18. They were pretty young. Oh God. So they'd obviously like got pregnant had to get married basically i think it was the 70s um so they split up while he was still a child as you would probably expect from a shotgun wedding of 18 year olds who probably don't like it's probably their first relationship or yeah yeah so his dad sort of had an affair and went off pretty quickly and his mother then became a lesbian and moved in with her lesbian lover um, I presume with Huntley too we didn't just sort of cast him out so um, at school Huntley was picked on by other children um, they called him gay I guess 
because he had two mums, maybe. I don't know. Like, people were stupid then. Yeah. I feel like... It would have been a To openly... Even in the 70s, that would have still been a big news. It wasn't fine yet. And then um, they called him Hammerhead, which I suspect means he was stupid. Or he had a really wide forehead and narrow chin. He did, actually, a bit. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, maybe, yeah. A logical name. You do, that, that's like classic thing. Like, there's always kids that had names like that. Lollipop Head. We had a kid that we used to call Lollipop Head. Was it me? No. <laughs> or like, in, um, Prism Head. Sweet Corn Head, my friend was. And you used to call that teacher Yogurt Pot Head. Yog- yeah, Yogurt Pot. <laughs> I don't know why. You said he looked like a Yogurt Pot. Yeah. You were a very creative child. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, Hammerhead's pretty tame as That's quite as funny, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's good. Um, so his mother also called him Hammerhead. No, no way. No, she, oh. <laughs> she belittled him, though. And she preferred the other brother, like the younger brother. So, uh, With the normal shaped head. Yeah. So a bit of mother issues there as well. So, to be fair, as sort of like murderers go he got quite a lot of GCSEs <laughs> it's such a risky start to a sentence like in what way are you gonna sort of make him seem okay as they go I mean he was a lovely person <laughs> no he got nine GCSEs I think that might be the most we've had on this podcast so far usually it's like a b-tech at best so he actually did okay. He just didn't stay on for further education. He decided to go work in factories instead. Um, and he used to go out with very young girls. So he was, what, so he did his GCSE, so 16, and he'd be out with 13-year-olds. Which I guess wasn't as weird then as if he was, like, 25 going out with 13-year-olds. I guess you're in the same ballpark. Yeah, you get that really, at, like, literally. secondary schools, don't you? yeah. I'm not um, saying it's right, it's creepy. It's I was not, yeah. talking to a girl who you, I used to teach, and she's about that age, 13 now, and I still work with her mum. And she came and, and her mum was like, oh, she's got this boyfriend, tell her he's 16. I was like, you do know your boyfriend's a paedophile. <laughs> she's like, what, what? I was like, he is a paedophile. <laughs> Deal with it now, dump him. <laughs> oh, God. She didn't, she didn't listen to me. No, they don't. So... He met um, 18-year-old Claire Evans when he was 20 and uh, the they got married within two weeks of meeting. Whirlwind romance. Um, turned out to be a terrible mistake because she left him a few days after that. So I'm hoping it was a cheap wedding and uh, moved in with his younger brother. I think, she no! just, I think she just got the wrong one. It's like when my friend went out like, she got asked out by one twin, but she meant, she fancied the other one. She just thought he was him. Uh-huh. So then she was like, oh, okay. And then she had to dump him and then immediately get with his twin, which was incredibly weird. So mortifying. But there was one that was better than the other. Yeah. Um. So she just kind of got with one brother. And maybe she met the other brother at the wedding and went, actually. How bad for the brother, though, to be like, <laughs> yeah. Surely, so, like, I know that sort of stuff happens, but you'd think there'd be some sort of cooling off period yeah. where you'd be like, you've just got married. Like, if we're going to have an affair, let's leave it a few yeah, weeks. that's true. So she said she asked for permission. She said, will you divorce me because I want to marry your brother? And uh, Huntley said no. <laughs> but then uh, yeah. she already had the last name anyway, so. Sometimes it's fun to be stubborn. 
(laughs) another one yesterday loads of the teaching assistants were coming up to me saying do we have to stay for staff meeting tonight and it pissed me off because they were asking me in the middle of the working day I was like if you've got nothing else to do but find me to ask me if you can piss off home early so I just told them all oh I don't know yet even though I knew they didn't have to come Did you make, did they, what, did you let them go right before it? Well, they can ask fucking someone else, but go do your job and I'll tell you at the end of the day, don't come to me when I'm teaching a lesson and be like, oh, do I have to stay tonight? Don't know, Julie. (laughs) We'll have to play it by ear, won't we? Right, so Huntley, um, having been dumped by his now uh, sister-in-law, effectively, um, he began having sex with very young girls. So he had sex with three 15-year-olds, not at the same time. I mean, imagine the giggling. <laughs> and oh, uh, <laughs> one 13-year-old. I mean, obviously, but he's 20 now. He is oh, firmly now he's in pedophile town. And um, and social... So he was a pedo then, because as a child... Yeah. Maybe they told it in the news, but that's the one, one thing that I didn't get from the story. I just thought that he wanted yeah, to kill no, kids. No, he was definitely... But he... um. Social services did get involved when he was 20 dating these 15 and 13 year olds and they talked to the girls and they said, you know, this is wrong, don't go around with him. Um, but they all just firmly believed that he was their boyfriend. So they they didn't yeah. see it as abuse. They just thought, oh, I've got a cool older boyfriend. So um, nothing happened as a result. He wasn't prosecuted or anything? No, I guess, that, I guess there was no proof and it, what was this, the 90s? Yeah. No proof. It was the nineties. I guess if they were going to prosecute everyone with an older boyfriend, it'd just be there all. Maybe day, the girls it? weren't revealing exactly who he was. Yeah, that's true. Um, so one of the fifteen-year-olds actually did become pregnant with his child. Oh god! Um, and she had it, but she didn't tell the child who her father was. Like she just, he just wasn't involved. So she became a single mother. So Huntley quickly became very controlling in these relationships that he had. Um, he would treat them as children. I mean, they were. So, and uh, he would like bully them. He become physically abusive. So he was like really like I guess like any parents like worst nightmare for their the, a boyfriend for their daughter. Yeah, and well, when you say he treats them like a child as well, he's still not. That's still inappropriate. Yeah. You're not even, you wouldn't even be a good babysitter of them if you're going to be nasty. So, 1998, when Huntley was 24, um, a teenager identified Huntley as raping her as she walked home down a dark path. So, like, predatory, not even, this isn't even grooming now. This is just, like, scary man in the sidelines. And he claimed they'd had consensual sex and it did go to court. Um, and because, oh, well, I think it, it, they, like, it was raised, she put in a complaint and she wanted to prosecute, but there was footage of the two of them, um, at a nightclub earlier in the night talking. So they just tra- treated that as, oh, well, you spent time with him. You must have had consensual sex and just fallen oh. out after. So, well, if the you were, were drunk gone. and you're in a club and you talk to a man, you lead him on, you, it's your own fault yeah, if okay. he has sex with you. Yeah. So that's We what know the said. story. But then... An 11-year-old came forward. He's 21. An 11-year-old came forward and she said that he'd assaulted her. And police just said there wasn't enough evidence and just ignored that as well. Um, so That definitely feels like a barrier. I know teenagers are still vulnerable and they are still children. And I know that their, you know, all their decision-making hasn't fully formed. I do understand all of that. But 
for when people do try and justify it, they say things like they acted older, they looked older, but going for an eleven year old is like yeah. very you know, pre pubescent yeah, is going is... into that, isn't it? Yeah. So in February nineteen ninety nine, Huntley met Maxine Carr. Now she's twenty two, so this is like consensual fine. Do you think um, that paedophiles have like little fun names for each other? You know how gay people have like twinks and bears and otters and stuff. Do you think pedos have like prepubes, teeny boppers? Mm, I think it's probably darker than that. <laughs> you know, they, okay. I think they. Do, I think they talk on the dark net. I bet they've got code beautiful. names for what they're into. Yeah. So they can say like, "I'm a something," and everyone knows what it is. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> but they definitely talk on the dark net because there's, there's been podcasts about it. Oh, okay. It's grim. Um, so, so he met Maxine Carr, 22, at a nightclub in 1999. And like previous relationships, it moved really quickly. Within four weeks, they were living together. Um, they She'd also experienced bullying. She'd been called, I don't know, wonky thighs or whatever. <laughs> I was trying to think of an equivalent to hammerhead. Um, Bottle nose. (laughs) Bottle nose. And um, her parents had separated when she was young, so she kind of felt like she understood him. She was also anorexic, and um, she felt like that stemmed from her grandmother dying when she was a teenager. So she ate a lot to comfort herself, put on weight, and then was teased. So probably more the teasing than the dead grandma, I imagine. Um, And so she dieted to kind of get over that um, being teased. And also she'd left school... After GCSEs, like he had, she'd done menial jobs, like he had. She actually worked for a while in a fish finger factory, which maybe that's what made her anorexic. And um, her previous boyfriends had all been controlling. So she definitely had a terrible type. I guess she yeah. kind of, like that. maybe that's just what she knew of relationships. Um, he He was the same as he'd been with other girlfriends. He was the same as her past boyfriends in terms of like he'd lie on the sofa, he'd bark orders at her, uh, he'd lose his, his temper if everything wasn't done to his standards. So he was very controlling in that relationship. So the couple moved to Soham with their dog and two pet rats. Um, and they told, oh, who gets pet rats? I don't know, like, you've got a hamster though. That's like yeah, a rat. Yeah, I wouldn't get a rat just because the tail is so long and like... It freaks me out. And Phyllis's tail is quite long. She's got like a little nipple end. <laughs> it's really hard. Yeah, they it's, yeah, they it's got like cartilagey. Like, if you flick it like, like prod it all the time. Yeah. yeah. But it's like a good seven millimeters. <laughs> it's a little t- some people have got micro penises that long. <laughs> it's weird. Um, sorry (laughs) so yeah so they had two pet rats and they told all their neighbours that they were moving to America but really they were just going to sew them Um, and Huntley had got a job as a caretaker so they moved into the caretaker's house is that still a thing caretaker's house on the property yeah we had one we've got one who lives yeah we have now well he doesn't live on well he lives outside the gate but literally the house outside the gates yeah but it seems mad because it's not like, in terms of a job, like, imagine loads of Imagine any them. other job being like, you have to live on the property. Well, imagine any other job being like, you get a free house. Oh, it's free? Well, it's not like you now have to pay the mortgage. Oh, yeah, sure. Because the house belongs to the school, ours does anyway. Oh, yeah. 
So you're like raking it. Oh, that's true. So that's big bonus. Yeah. But then you're literally always at work. Well, not really. Our, <laughs> in case you're interested in becoming a site manager, I think it sounds easy. Like you come to work at like what five a.m. till seven thirty. Yeah. And then you don't come back till half two. Oh, really? It doesn't come out in the school day. Oh. Unless someone's thrown up or something, like it's one's around all day. Oh. Yeah, walks his dogs, there's a fag outside. <laughs> well, when are I've ever, like, hours. Like, he didn't do balls on a roof or nothing. He is pissed, like, will not come. I used to, like, handyman on call. Like, I can't find the key to I mean, ours might be shit, to be fair, but. <laughs> yeah, sounds like he's doing all right. What, like, four hours a day he works? I don't know. Something. He probably works eight hours a day. Oh. But split. It'll be like four in the morning, yeah, four in the afternoon. No, no, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so, on um, Sunday... Career change on hold. <laughs> yeah. On Sunday the 4th of August, 2002, Holly Wells and Jessica Chapman, who were best friends at both age 10, went to a barbecue at Holly's house. And um, they're both wearing matching Man United shirts. They ate with family, then went to a local shop to buy sweets. Um, but they didn't return from the shop they'd gone to. So the parents reported them missing and they were frantic. Police began a search around midnight and in the morning, hundreds of volunteers joined in. Um, and obviously, you know, for them to be gone overnight, everyone's sort of panicking at this mm. point. Um, pictures of the girls were shown to the local community and obviously it started to be on the news. Parents held a news conference asking for details. Even David Beckham appealed for information. Um, and that was like the Beckham years, wasn't it? The 90s. Is that like the sarong and like frosted tips. Yeah. Um, so a few witnesses came forward um, stating they'd seen the girls, including Ian Huntley, the caretaker at their did they school. Go- oh, I was going to say, yeah. did they go to his school? Um, he'd also helped in the search as well the next day. So he'd been wandering around. Um, Maxine Carr. Um, well, I, I've, I've read mixed reports here. So... Um, I think Maxine Carr, his girlfriend, was their teaching assistant at a school previously, maybe at their infant school, because I heard that she'd gone for a job at the school that they were at and then didn't get it. So I think oh. she she knew them from another job. Um, he said he'd been grooming his dog outside and the two girls had come over and asked about Miss Carr, who was away for the weekend, um, and asked about her getting the job. And he said, oh, no, she hasn't got it, which... I think it was a bit weird to say to them anyway. Like, oh, she's really disappointed she'd get the job. And then they'd walked off towards the library. And you can see uh, the video of him on YouTube. He's very convincing. He's quite well, natural. it wouldn't be weird to pop around again. Like, when I was at primary school at this time, we used to go to the caretaker's house at the weekend and ask him to let us into school so we could use the computers and go on and Carter 95. <laughs> <laughs> because we didn't have computers at home. <laughs> Okay. I mean, that wouldn't happen now, but we definitely did at least twice. I remember going letting school on a weekend to use the computer to use the encyclopedia software. Yeah, that was really sad. <laughs> <laughs> True crime. I think we were also writing a school newspaper or something, and we needed to type it up in our own time. So the police searched Huntley's house because he'd been the last person to have seen them, and they obviously they searched the school as well. They didn't find any evidence, uh, but they they still didn't sort of 
discount him they he was beginning to act a bit weird so he was like too quick to ask questions he was like oh, have they found anything what can i do really so how did he get on the radar because he admitted that he'd seen them th- that day he came or forward because and people... said i've seen they spoke to me i've seen them and did like interviews so he, like... if he hadn't come forward and said that he wouldn't have even been linked would no. he no he was like putting himself forward and then he um then he was like really keen to be part of the investigation so they decided to research the school and this time they found the man united shirts that holly and jessica had been wearing and they were half burned and they were in the area that the caretaker would have been working so then they arrested ian huntley and maxine carr so 17th of august 13 days after they disappeared holly and jessica's bodies were actually found by a warden walking through the woods They'd been partially burned and they'd been left in a ditch and they appeared to have been killed by asphyxiation, which is, I guess, suffocation. So the location of the bodies were found somewhere Huntley had been reportedly seen plane spotting before and it was also near where his father lived, so it would have been an area that he was quite um, used to, quite aware of. So at Huntley's house, they also found fibres matching the Man United tops and on the sweatshirts that they'd found half burned, there was Huntley's hair found um jessica had also had a phone on her so like a mobile phone no probably way. like a nokia brick or something um and it turned off and you know how they ping to like the the mobile yeah. phone tower what year was this oh sorry 2002 okay so i was a bit older then yeah yeah well like year seven year eight um, her phone had sort of pinged that like she'd been like around um, but then it like showed signal near Huntley's house and then been switched off so Huntley was charged with murder and Maxine was charged with assisting an offender because she'd given him an alibi when she hadn't have been there so she'd been at her mother's um, but she said that she'd been in the house um, when he had so the trial was held 2003 at London Old Bailey's courthouse um, and all the evidence that I've previously mentioned was presented um, and also that Huntley had cleaned his car and he changed the wheels very soon after the girls had been murdered He's also, he'd also asked the mechanic to put down a different number plate for the work um, so obviously trying to cover uh, his tracks which I mean how stupid are people that they would have put the wrong like, registration no, down no that he could... would ask someone that I mean might as well just have a big flashing sign saying I've done a murder <laughs> like, stupid um, so even though he'd done that on the outside of the car uh, there was soil and chalk that had been linked to where the bodies had been found so he'd obviously driven there recently um, so he yeah, with the amount of evidence initially he said not guilty not guilty not guilty and then three weeks into the trial so actually part way through which again I think made this quite a memorable story because it adds to the sensationalism doesn't it if someone changes their story part way through trial yeah. um, suddenly they come in and say he's changed he confessed to the murder of the two girls no, he did this through a statement because apparently he was poorly that day Oh, so he claimed and this story is ridiculous he claimed holly and jessica had come to his house and they'd asked for maxine his girlfriend but then holly had suddenly started having a nosebleed so he'd let them use the bathroom so they'd come in and he'd sat holly in the bathtub with water in to help her clean off the nosebleed Um, have a bath yeah so but while getting a tissue so he turned around he got a tissue and then he turned around and accidentally knocked her and she'd fallen into the bath and she'd died 
So then Jessica had like, started... Oh, by the way, my bath is seven foot tall. <laughs> yeah. So then Jessica had started screaming because her friend had died and he'd covered her mouth to quiet her and accidentally suffocated her to death. And then he'd put the bodies in the car, taken them to Dublin in the woods and cut off their clothes to burn at the school. Yeah. Like what? And also been a pedo for his whole life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the defence team now had to start trying to justify this story oh, God. and prove that it, was, it wasn't it was complete bullshit of the fiction of a ridiculous man. And they must have done okay because when it came for the jury to deliberate, they took five days. What? Unless they were getting some pretty swanky meals at that time. Like, oh, just uh, let's just go over the facts again. Uh, maybe they were in like a posh hotel in London. Maybe. Going to see a show. So, uh, Carr was found guilty, obviously. Uh, oh, sorry. Maxine Carr was found guilty of conspiring to pervert the course of justice. So, she got uh, a short sentence, and then Huntley was found guilty of two counts of murder. And uh, Huntley's daughter, that I mentioned earlier, she actually found out that Ian Huntley was her father because apparently she was doing like a project at school and she started looking into it. Imagine that if you do a true crime project, you're like, oh, he's my dad. No way. And then she found out that Huntley was her biological father when she was That 14. would be so terrifying, Awful. researching it yourself in like, from the standpoint of he's a horrible killer and then being like, oh, fuck. And also he raped your, like, he raped your mum. He was abusive. And then her mum told her everything. And obviously she thought, what a piece of shit my father Jeez. is. So then, like, her mother had all these, like, cuttings from, um, like, the when he'd, like, when he'd been found guilty. And, like, stuff, like she'd accused him of rape as well, hadn't she? Like, so she had, like, news articles of that. And it must have been awful. Or that's the best answer you can give to a really awkward conversation of, Mum, why do you have a shrine of newspaper cuttings of a child murderer? And she's like... <laughs> Rather than say, I fancy him, say, he's your dad. Yeah, that's true. Um, so she actually wrote to Ian Huntley um, when she was 17 out of curiosity. I think she thought that he might tell her stuff about the murders that he hadn't told other people and then she could pass on that information or something like that. Um, so she said it was out of curiosity um, and... To see if he would show remorse as well. And I guess you kind of, you just would want to know you would. Yeah, you think like maybe you can do something to help. But he, he didn't show any remorse. He, he said how horrendous a day it was for him. uh, And he didn't want to explain his actions. And uh, there's this really nauseating episode of Loose Women where they interview uh, the daughter. (laughs) And they just ask the most like inane questions about, Oh, how did you feel about finding with your dad? It's awful. Uh, but if you want, you can check that out on YouTube. And uh, Maxine Carr was given a new identity and she has lifelong anonymity. And I was looking into this and apparently she lives in the same town as Karen Matthews and Tracy Connolly, who was Baby P's mother. And they all live... So they all live in the same... So they've basically built like a murderous ghetto. Well, sort of. And then... Um, you can read some articles online because everyone was like oh my god I can't believe and there's photos of um, Tracy Connolly now and uh, Karen Matthews now because they haven't got this anonymity order whereas uh, Maxine Carr has so they can't put any pictures on they can't like, say where she lives so they can't mention the name of the town or like anything about it because it will give her away so it's almost like 
by hanging out with her, like they're getting a bit more anonymity as well. Ah. It's really weird. It's, it's a really strange little scenario. Anyway, so that's the horrible story of Ian Huntley. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So, I'm now going to tell you the story of a lady called Florence Ransom. And this is a slightly more historical murder from the 1940s. So, cast your mind back. So, the protagonist, Florence, she was born at the turn of the century and she was Florence Iris Ransom as she married her first husband she was originally Florence Iris Guilford and she was known for being a bit of a social climber she liked to put on airs and would always tell stories from a really young age about how she was really adopted and this weren't her real family and um that she was only staying here and she'd be moving on to better oh, things that she was undercover uh, that she was really a, a lady um all sorts of things she also would tell people that she was a changeling child when she was younger well, is that where they switch out a kid yeah one of the ones no isn't it the one where like they're like a little monster oh is it the changeling is about a kid that is like that has been her kid goes missing and then they just turn up with this kid and go there's your child and she's like yeah that's definitely not my child oh i thought, like no it's definitely your child that sounds more logical i thought changeling children were like we're like goblins or fairies that turned into human babies maybe. and then we're like oh not really i'm a goblin baby <laughs> maybe i made that they're up. all fucking goblins aren't they <laughs> every child um so yeah she would make up loads of lies and she eventually when she got like into her teens, she ended up being self-admitted to hospital a few times. Um, she said that bad memories were causing her to faint, have like bouts of hysteria, 
but she didn't say what these memories were and there was no there's no record of any specific trauma in her life but she would have these just bouts of well what now might be if it happened today and we had more um, information about her symptoms it could be linked to maybe some other things maybe like manic depressive episodes but she did have these periods where she would go into hospital so her life would change forever when she became involved with the Fisher family so Walter Fisher was a London born and bred guy he was well educated he um, had really good jobs he worked for very well-known companies like Dunlop and Standard Motor Um, In 1913, he was 27, and he married a 21-year-old lady called Dorothy. And the couple had two daughters together, Janet and Frida. But their marriage began to fall apart fairly soon. Um, And it wasn't too long before they were both living in the same house, but completely separately. Um, But they actually worked... They were one, the couple. They weren't meant to be together, but they worked quite well separately. It wasn't a once they started living separately, the household became quite well functioning. Um, by 1934, Dorothy Fisher had a lover, a Danish man by the name of Mister Vestergaard, mm. um, and Walter Fisher. He had several affairs with young women, but eventually he met and started to be pretty consistent with Florence Ransom. Uh, so but they would both they would have their lovers come to the family home for visits like come around for dinner and they also bought a country home in Matfield um, specifically so that they could both go and take their partners there to actually stay with them they're like housemates aren't they yeah and with kids yeah housemates with kids and a sexy dirty timeshare yeah like it's all working out really well sounds great the Fisher, they never sought a divorce. They just quite amicably went about this modern arrangement as like a big group of friends, basically, and kept up appearances to other people. Um, so by 1940, the situation then started to alter. Um, the breakout of World War II meant that Dorothy Fisher and Frieda, who was now 19 years old, they decided to move more permanently to the sexy cottage in Matfield, so that they could avoid the blitz. And Mr. Fisher, he then moved out of the city and they bought a farm in Piddington, Oxfordshire, I believe, where he began to cohabit with Florence Ransom and the unsuspecting neighbours, they all just knew her as Mrs. Fisher. Well, I guess, like, it's war. Everyone's fucking everywhere. Like, yeah. no one's keeping track anymore. Bombs are dropping on your hometown. Yeah. You, the world is going to end. Just, like, get yeah. out and live with your lovers. Yeah. So... Um, unfortunately for her and yeah unfortunately long term really the real Mrs Fisher she wasn't able to have her Mr Westergaard move in to the cottage there was a wartime restriction on that specific area that meant that non-British citizens non-British citizens unless they were like military personnel would be allowed to live there I think it was due to its proximity with some sort of barracks but they had to have a permit and she couldn't obtain one for him well, I mean, Denmark was an occupied country, but they were resisting. It's all politics, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So, um, 
Each fortnight, roughly, Mr. Fisher would travel um, to, I think it's in Kent, the Matfield Cottage, and see his daughter, give her allowance. And sometimes Mr. Westergaard would be there. Sometimes he would take Florence. So it continued to all work very well. Um, the Fisher Collective, they also had, um, as well, although their arrangement now would seem quite well, like a good blended family, at the time it was bizarre. And so they did all like to role play and use nicknames a lot. Not really role plays in like dress up and have at it with each oh. other. No, no, no. More just like... I thought it was like a sexy little no. nurse thing. They all just had these nicknames for each other. I think because it didn't want... They didn't want Dorothy and Walter to be Mr. and Mrs. Fisher because that took them away from the partners they were with. And right. any sort of... Obviously, letter writing was still huge in mm. the 40s. Any sort of correspondence lying around with names in could be quite incriminating as to what was happening. So they all had nicknames for each other. Mrs. Fisher was Lizzie. Mr. Fisher was Peter. Florence was Julie. Just random names for lols. But they called them it all the time. So a lot of the later things in like court and the evidence they would give was really confusing because they would keep (laughs) calling each other by the nickname. It was very well embedded. So despite these slightly unconventional living arrangements, it wasn't until Tuesday the 9th of July... 1940 that people outside of their immediate circle knew anything was different or going on so on this day tuesday the 9th of july at five o'clock dorothy's eight-year-old mother called mrs gibbs she rang her cottage to see why hadn't she come to visit she came every tuesday this time it's getting late what the fuck's happening um, so blackout was coming soon. So she sent her gardener, John Lurie, to find out what was going on and get back before we have to start shutting everything down. So he arrived at Matfield Cottage at 6.45. And he, when he got there, in the driveway was the body of a woman. Whoa. And it was the body of the servant at the house, Charlotte Saunders. And he all he saw at that moment was that there was blood coming pooling from her head, from the back of her head. Oh so he potentially thought that she'd fallen and had some sort of terrible accident. So he didn't go in the house to check anything. He just immediately went for the police. And which at that time, obviously a lot of men gone to war. They're in a quite remote village. He had to go to the nearest one, which was a part-time special officer. So not even, so like a volunteer community support, basically. He was just a teacher who was like, and then in my free time, I'll police the village. So they went to fetch him. And then together they went into the house. Um, It appeared to be completely ransacked. They couldn't find the women at all. Mrs. Fisher and her daughter Frida were nowhere to be found. The house was an absolute mess, but it didn't look like anything obvious had been taken. So... So like someone had been looking for something. Either someone had been looking for something or some kind of struggle, or they were trying to make it look like a burglary. So they sent for the real police because this lad couldn't really do anything. um, And they waited So while they were hanging around, the only real thing that they noticed at that point was that there was a yellow bicycle that was really bent up and broken just about 50 yards from the house as if it had been used and then just abandoned. So the police didn't got there about quarter past nine that night. So blackout was in effect. They They had to obviously pull everything down in the house, all the curtains, and they couldn't use lots and lots of light to be searching outside. 
Um, so they were having to inspect Charlotte Saunders by torchlight to try and find any clues as to what was going on. And it was only at this point that they noticed that she'd actually been shot in the back of the head. Oh, shit. Well, I, this guy definitely wasn't a very good policeman yeah. then. Well, I think she must have laid so that where the wound was was against the floor. Yeah. Um, and then obviously when the police are coming, they can't even get much light on the situation. Yeah. But they have to look now because it might give them some clue as to what to do or where the women are. Um, so it's all very awkward. Well, I guess in a blackout, you're probably not allowed to use torches and stuff. They could use a torch, but they were like covering it up, like hunching over it. Oh, okay. Or later they would get their policemen were still wearing capes at the time. So you're literally like under a blanket. Look yeah. That's fucking so they'd have to get their capes out and use their torches, not knowing if there was a person there. If they... That is a good use for a cape, though. Like yeah. I've never really thought of a good use for a cape before, but a blackout to see where you're going. But sure. That's very good. Or you could just use some sort of visor situation. Yeah. Over the torch. Like a headlamp shade. Yeah. But capes are more dramatic when you swish after a burglar. (laughs) Um, So then they searched the whole house again. There were no sign of the women still. The only really things they found were they were looking through and they found all of these letters addressed to people that didn't live at the house. Um, so, oh yeah they'd be like the fuck are these people yeah all of the correspondence wasn't even related to them as they, as far as they knew but then as they as they couldn't find them so they had not much to do they read through the letters and <laughs> they thought they had gone pretty well, bored there's they a few the of them along. searching through everything <laughs> Frida's name was mentioned in some of the letters she didn't get a nickname um, and Gosh. they also saw in the kitchen that there had been a tea tray that had been dropped on the floor of the kitchen and there were enough tea things for four people so they assumed that whoever had come that day or there had been a visitor that day someone they knew who was coming for tea so it was not a small plot they searched three and a half acres of land out the back by this torchlight under a cape yep Um, and eventually they came across the body of Frida Fisher. She was lying dead in the entrance to the orchard. So the she was a point. child. Yes. Aww. She was shot in the back. And then they started to walk further into the orchard. And then also shot in the back was the body of her mother, Dorothy Fisher. Um, there was one clue that lay in between the body of the two corpses. And it was a lady's white pigskin glove. Yeah. Yes. It's very vegan. Well, I guess leather, but yeah, you don't really just... You don't really call it pigskin, do you? <laughs> well, in the um, the book that I was reading was More Secrets from the Black Museum by Gordon Honeycomb. And he kept calling it a hogskin glove. And I was like, there's no need for that. I'm going to call it pigskin. <laughs> so um, then the bodies were examined at the scene. Obviously, capes, cover, get in um, to block any light from the, for the enemy planes. Um, and they found that both women had initially been shot in the back and then they'd been shot further times at close range. So Frida had been shot in the back and then twice more at close range and Mrs. Fisher, Dorothy, she'd been shot in the back and then once more again at close range. So sure. whoever it was had like shot made them. Made sure they were dead. Yeah, shot them as they were running away from them, then walked over to them and just got them as they were Which is down. how you should do it in a horror film if someone, like... If you get your attacker. Yeah. Because, like, do you know when you just assume that they're dead? They always come back to life. Or they just grab you by the ankle, don't they? 
I, th- I find it weird. Like, it must have been hard to give a shit about murder when people are getting blown up all the time. Yeah. Or maybe you'd be more annoyed because you'd be like, all of this senseless violence and now we're even killing people maybe. in our own country. Yeah. But you would think I've got bigger things to deal with, maybe. Like, oh, fuck it. So, um, Mrs. Fisher's Danish lover... Mr. Vestergaard, he was top of the suspect list. Um, But he had a rough alibi for the night, at least one that prevented him from being able to travel to the cottage and back to where he'd been seen in any sort of time. So he's still alive? Yeah, he's alive and he was completely devastated by the news. Okay. Um, So then the next suspect, because as we know, most murders are committed by people you know anyway... Plus then the fact that they had the tea thing to suggest that it was someone they'd welcomed into their home. The next suspect, and obviously it's more like that men are shooting women. So then we go to Mr. Fisher. Um, and so on Wednesday morning, the police visited his farm in Piddington, Oxfordshire. Mr. Fisher as well was completely devastated at the news of this triple murder. His ex-wife, his daughter, yeah. uh, this servant who had been like more of a family friend, they'd known her for years, um, absolutely devastating. So he apparently broke down and needed to have a lie down. Police couldn't question him after they told him the news straight away. So they went and spoke to the foreman of the farm first. And he told them that, oh, Mrs. Fish is inside. Um, She's been fine. Like Fred, the cowman, he's been teaching her to ride a bike for the last few weeks. Um, Fred's mum is the housekeeper. Mrs. Fisher employed them both. Everything's oh, fine. It's a different Mrs. Fisher. That he, okay. Yeah. So then it became clear that Mrs. Fisher was actually Florence Ransom back in the house. So they just thought, he, yeah, that she was yeah. his wife. So police then took Mr. Fisher to Kent so that he could formally identify the bodies. And while they were travelling there, he told them all about the family situation, just like. Because he couldn't believe what's happening. So he's just talking, talking, talking. And tells them everything that's going on in their lives. So the police had managed to work out that it was Frieda Fisher had been shot first. And then Mrs. Fisher had tried to run away and was shot as she ran off. The fact that they were able to have this huge gap. Because if you have two people stood before you, you could just bang, bang. Yeah. So that suggests that there was this delay it was obviously some sort of shotgun where once you'd fired, you would have oh, to reload. manually take yeah. out the cartridge and put in a new one. Um, and also, if the, so if the women hadn't been like proper country bumpkins and wearing wellies to go and have tea in the garden, they might have been able to run away a little bit faster. Well, you can't run in wellies. You can't run great in wellies. Or gum boots. Yeah. If you were wearing 1940s rubber gum boots, I would expect you wouldn't be great. Yeah. Um, So it then thought that Mrs. Saunders, or Miss Saunders, Charlotte, the maid, she'd heard this, possibly seen it, dropped that tea tray, and then ran for help by trying to go around the side of the cottage and into the front of the driveway. And that's why she was shot out the front there. Shit. So they got quite a lot of information. Yeah. And then they obviously took all of those letters they'd found. And as they read through them further, they revealed that things actually weren't so harmonious in the family as had been uh, suspected. There was this quite recent exchange where they'd all used fake names, but I'll use their real names between them. So basically, Frida had been staying with her dad and with Florence at their home. And then over something quite little, it seems, Frida and Florence had had this argument 
And Florence had absolutely flipped out and wrote to Mrs. Fisher saying, Frida's going to have to come home. Like, I can't have her in here anymore. Um, So then Mrs. Fisher wrote to her ex-husband with a copy of the letter saying, look what she's doing. I think she's, quote, laboring under some mental strain. Like, can you get a grip on this? So then Florence clapped back with another letter um, saying like, I actually always keep a copy of my letters and Mr. Fisher saw it before. So your little trick didn't work. Um, and then, Snap. yeah. And she said, there seems to be some mystery about this whole situation, which I am unable to solve to solve. And then talking about Frida said, I fear I must withdraw and leave her to you as her father seems as mortified as I. So they were really getting pissed off with each other. There were other letters where Frida was saying sorry for upsetting her, like it, she didn't mean for anything to happen. Um, it's so funny with letters because it's all so long-winded because you could like angrily write a letter, but then you're like, I've got to put it in the envelope, yeah. put the well, stamp on And bloody Florence, she's writing them out twice. <laughs> yeah, she's angrily writing too. But I, th- the impression is that Florence was very sensitive. We know from her childhood that she had had episodes of, um, like I said, hysteria, bad nerves, whatever they called it yeah. then. And it seems that she'd had some sort of episode involving Frida where she'd just blown it and the family were a little bit pissed off with each other because Mr. Fisher isn't stepping in and getting involved. So, but when he'd seen the bodies and had a little think about it, he didn't go home to Florence after he'd identified the bodies. He actually went and stayed back in the city for a couple of days That's afterwards. pretty weird. Yeah, if you'd had this horrible news, you'd go home, you'd be yeah. with your loved ones, and he didn't. In court later, he said that he'd noticed shotgun cartridges on the bedside table on Florence's side the day before the murder, and that he'd seen a cleaning rod for a shotgun had been in the spare room. And he'd asked her about them and she just said, oh, I'm learning to shoot. Fred's teaching me, the cowman. Like, it's fine. Then, the night of the murder, Florence wasn't at home when Mr. Fisher arrived from work. Normally, she'd be there when he got there at quarter seven and she'd have dinner. So he was at home waiting around and she arrived just before nine o'clock. And he said that she was very distressed and she was telling him this story about how she'd been chasing a cat and she fell over and cut her head. So she'd had to go and lie down at Fred's house. And then that's why she's late home. Um, and he said that she was, quote, crazy and bewildered. And that... A bit harsh. Yeah. And that that night she hadn't slept. She'd been restless getting up. He was like, something's Crazy and bewildered. Which right. is it? <laughs> so... Mr. Fisher didn't tell the police at the time about his concerns about his lover's behavior, but later he would say that she'd been having brainstorms and she would have like memory loss where she wouldn't know what she'd done for large periods of time. So like either seizures or strokes, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much like maybe mini strokes, things like that. So the Guilfords were Fred the cowman and his mother, Mrs. Guilford, the housekeeper. And they were also trying to protect Florence. So they, however, had a good reason. Because they weren't just staff. They were actually Florence's brother and her mother. Oh, God. But even... (laughs) like, get out. Yeah, but Mr. Fisher didn't even know that. 
She'd employed them to work in the house and not told him that they're her relatives. Oh my God. And obviously it never came up why they were waiting on her and her husband. (laughs) He had no idea. I mean, servant. Even in court, even in court, she denied that they were, it was her mom and brother. Because weirdly, that's what upset her mom the most. She was willing to try and cover for her for murder. But she came out of court and spoke to newspapers and was just absolutely devastated that she denied her us as her family and she wouldn't say that she came from uh, the working class, basically. So Florence said she hadn't really left the farm all day on the day of the murders and her mum had covered for her and said, no, yeah, that's fine. And her brother, he said he'd been teaching her to shoot his shotgun. True, but it, was, it wasn't even missing on that Tuesday. However, witnesses would later say that they saw... Because obviously this is Oxford to Kent. So she had committed the murders. She would have had to have travelled and been out for a long time. So witnesses would say that they'd seen Florence catching a train on that Tuesday morning at 8.56am. Then some other witnesses saw her at 3.20pm. I mean, she was quite striking. She had auburn-coloured hair. She was quite attractive. They would have noticed her. Uh, they saw at 3.20 in Matfield, walking with a parcel wrapped in brown paper. It was about one yard long, four inches wide. <laughs> it was gun-shaped. <laughs> Shotgun-shaped. She was seen again at 3.45, running through the village. Then she was seen at the station with her long, thin parcel, asking when's the next train to London and being quite, people said, a bit rude. She was very, oh. like she was in a big rush. She's not laying low then. No. So that Friday, um, on the 12th of July, um, they decided that they were going to arrest Florence Ransom. And I just love the cuteness of how, like, quaint and things are because they didn't have a female officer working that day, partly because there weren't many people and partly because there weren't many female police officers. So the detective inspector's wife had to come along just to make sure it's all above board. So when they... I mean, there was this whole, there was a massive goose chase where they went to the farm to arrest her and she was gone. And basically she was in London pissing around, trying to get hold of her husband, beg him for help. And her brother and her mum were covering for her saying, oh, she's shopping. Oh, she's back. And it's a nightmare. They did get her eventually with the help of her husband. And she said... She never visited the cottage on the 9th. She also denied being related to anyone. She was like, this is all just bullshit. On the Saturday the 13th, she was charged with the three murders. Um, They found bruises on her legs when they searched her and sent her in that consisted with the fall from a bicycle. So they think, obviously, she'd just recently learned to ride a bike. So as much as it might seem like this was an out of the blue attack of the mind, like something murder, she'd been learning to ride a bike specifically learning to shoot specifically. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then this bike was found, crashed, fallen over. So she might have been bewildered. She might have had a head she injury. She riding a bike. Um, but she did have this. I wondered why it was all crushed up. Like, has she been like yeah. smashing around from And one I think that's why she was panicking at the station because she thought she was going to be able to cycle there. And now she's had to walk. And oh my God, nightmare. So... <laughs> the trial began on Thursday, 7th of November, 1940, which sounds like a long time considering they arrested her in a week. But we had to put it off because we need the Battle of Britain to happen first because there was, uh, before that time, 
there was still a, quite a valid threat that Hitler, he had a plan to invade England. And until the Battle of Britain was won, he that's when he changed his plan. So once they knew the country wasn't going to be invaded, they were like, right, now we'll get down to business. <laughs> yeah. um, so Florence Ransom was the only witness for her defence. There was nobody else. She spoke about her struggles with mental health in the past and how that summer she'd suffered a recurrence of the attacks of giddiness, she said. Um, she told the court how on the 9th of July she'd wanted to catch a train to London and that she'd ended up just standing in a field watching the trains go by and then she couldn't remember anything else until she went to bed. So she's basically doing the Breaking Bad thing of saying she had a fugue state, pretty much. Um, The next thing she says she remembers is falling and hitting her head. So she's basically just trying to say, I know nothing, it's nothing to do with me. And if it is, I didn't know I was doing it. So they did the OJ. They made her try on the glove that no, had been recovered from the, the scene. The skin glove. Yes. Because at the time, they would have been pretty much custom made or measured yeah. um, and obviously fit like a glove. It should have... Leather does not give. So she put it on and it looked to everyone like a perfect fit. But she's there going, oh, well, it's not very comfortable. <laughs> it's, it's too small, really. Um, this time, unlike your case, the jury took 47 minutes to deliberate (laughs) and then returned a guilty verdict. So initially she was given the death sentence. Um, however, on the 21st of December, the death sentence was repealed after some medical professionals, um, examined her and they found her to be of unsound mind. So she was sent to Broadmoor. Um, she was then transferred to Whitechurch Hospital in 1966 and she was released in 1967 Whoa. at age 60 after having served 26 years. Well, do you serve it in a hospital? But she was yeah, in 26 uh, years. Yeah. Oh, she's probably dead now. Well, she will be dead now unless yeah. she's like 200. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.